Welcome to another edition of Daf Shui, Weekly Daf. Give me 40 minutes or so and I'll give you a Daf or so in the Safer at Home Beit Midrash in the Closet. We just passed Lagba Omer. Lagba Omer, what better holiday for staying at home? A holiday that includes both bows and arrows and bonfires. So to all the parents out there who survived this week, Yasher Kochachem. It's weeks like these that I'm kind of glad my kids are grown up and out of the house. Bonfires and bows and arrows. Yes. All right. We are on Chaf Dalit Amud Aleph 24a in the edition that the brothers and widow Rome published in Vilna Lodi's many years ago. It is three lines from the top of 24a. We're going to pop back for a minute to. 23b, because just to remind ourselves that this um, Sugya is based on Reb Hanina's statement at the beginning of the Sugya, right after the Mishnah on 23b at the top of the page. Amar Hanina, rov karov rov. When you have a, a majority, and, and but also you have situation where something is close in distance, then you follow the majority. And uh, that's what we're we're talking. That's what we we're disputing. And the question there was about a young bird that fell out of a tree, or that was found on the ground, or was walking along the ground, or was between two dovecotes. And so, how do you decide who it belongs to? Um, they said, well, if it's within fifty amot, it belongs to the dovecote that's within fifty amot. If it's outside fifty amot, it belongs to whoever finds it. Um, then we had this great part of the sugya where uh, Marukva says that any a dove who or a pigeon, remember the same thing, but dove's got better PR, dove that waddles will, will not waddle more than 50 amot, 50 cubits from the dove coat. And Rabirmiya on that asked uh, what happens if it has one leg inside the 50 amot perimeter and one leg outside the 50 mode perimeter, and then they kicked Rabbi Yirmiya out of the Beit Midrash. And then later on at the end of the of the Masechet, uh, there are these three stories wherein Rabbi Yirmiya was asked questions, he answered them in a very humble manner, and he was allowed back into the Beit Midrash. Now the interesting thing here is that what is the literary, ultimately the literary function of this Rabbi Yirmiya line? Because the Rabbi Yirmiya line is uh, and on this, Rabbi was kicked out of the Beit Midrash, comes right after a question of Rabbi Yirmiyaz, which we said last week, by Rabbi Yirmiyaz, what if his, Rabbi asks if one of his legs are inside the 50 Amma perimeter, one of his legs are outside of the dove, outside the 50 Amma perimeter? That seems to be a straightforward question. Okay. Um, Rashi says it was an annoying question. Tosut said it's because he was challenging the rule that only up to 50 mo. But what's interesting if we is if we skip over the line well, that they kicked about this, they kicked because of this, they kicked Rabbi out of the Midrash. We continue with the Tashma They bring a text which says basically quoting our Mishnah. It's, our, it's not basically it is the quote from our Mishnah, if it's found between two dovecotes, if it's close to this dovecote, it belongs to this dovecote, if close to that one, it belongs to that one, which seems to be the way, be an answer to the question, right? That's what happens. You have an Ibailu, and then you have Tashmas, which bring text that answer the question. So if we just leave out 
this line, Rabbi Yirmiyah was kicked out of the Beit Midrash, then the sugya would go along as one would expect the sugya to go along. So it's not clear. So this, and this line is in Aramaic. Uh, the Rabbi Yirmiyah line is in Hebrew. For all these reasons, it seems that the Rabbi Yirmiyah line of uh, the story is a later edition. Rabbi Yirmiyah asks a pretty ordinary question, which pushes the halakhic data that we already have into a new place, fits into the general trend of the sugya, which flows from the line in the Mishnah, which says, Mechza al Mechza that if it's halfway between the two dovecotes, they divide it. And it's, uh, you know, the continuation, as we said, is just following, there's a tashma, which brings in a text, which was supposed to, which in these kind of situations, perhaps is to try to, to figure out when you have a dilemma, which one of the dilemma we're going to go with. So here's my suggestion, um, beyond what I said last week, that this is, that last week I suggested that the problem with Rabirmia or is that they were patrolling the borders of the authority of the sugya, in a sense, right? What questions are legitimate, what questions aren't, or how, what's considered undermining, what's not, what's So here I want to suggest here that the Rabirmia line is a warning that we do not disbelieve situations that the sugya puts before us, and we don't undermine the hierarchy of the sugya itself. Meaning what? The rest of the sugya, the Rabirmia story is kind of a prophylactic because the continuation of the sugya is expecting us to believe that the Mishnah is not talking about general cases, but very specific cases. And we'll see that as we go along, that we're not talking about, uh, we're not talking about the, the, what one would think would be the case of, for example, we're going to get to the case of a, a cask floating in the river. It's not a cask floating in the river. It's floating in the river, which came from a certain place, perhaps got caught up in an eddy, and it ended up uh, opposite another place. So in every one of these questions, we could we could step back and say, wait a second, that's kind of crazy. That's a, an absurd case. The Rabirmia line here is almost as a warning, don't do that, right? Let this play out. Why? Because when you do that, you undermine the purpose of the sugya, or you undermine the authority of the internal authority of this literary text. And then, and that's the reason you get thrown out of the study hall. Okay, so that's, so I just wanted to suggest that that's why Rabirmia statement is here. And also that the Rabirmia statement here possibly comes because of, right? It's not that the Rabirmia statement here is that somebody saw those three questions at the end of the Gemara, in which Rabbi Yirmiyah, who is in Eretz Yisrael, is in the land of Israel, was asked these questions, three questions, which are like half and half questions. You have two Adim in two different courts, but then they come together, or you have one aide that wrote, one aide that said out loud. These kind of half and half questions, which are very similar to his question here, which is half in, half out. And there he answered all those questions humbly. He said, I was not worthy, I am your student, was not worthy to answer these questions. And then there, they said, the Stam adds there, saw that, and said, you know what? And this is, of course, complete suggestion, complete assumption, based on nothing aside from a literary reading. The Stam, the some, at some point, saw this and said, you know what? Something must have happened that caused Rabirmia to be so humble. And then put these two together and put in the line here, which said, this is why they threw him out of the Beit Midrash, and put in the line there, that said that they brought him back into the Beit Midrash. Or perhaps there was an oral tradition that Rabirmia was thrown out of the Beit Midrash, and then they used this as kind of the Midrash to pick up on that. Okay. So now we're going to continue with Abaya, who is also going back and uh, reaffirming Rabbi Kina. Amar Abaya, 
So I also agree with Rav Chanina's statement that Rav Karov Harov, you have a majority and you have something that's closer in distance, you follow the majority. Right? And the, the what he brings here, what he quotes here is a Mishnah from Nida. Blood that's found in the prosdor, which is the uh, the vagina, which is doubtful about whether or not it is tamay. When it's we don't know where it's from, it is considered impure because we assume that it is from the uterus, that it's uterine blood, which is menstrual blood, which is impure. Even though there is the Aliyah, which is close, and the Aliyah is probably the fallopian tombs. So now, I just want to say that uh, many, many scholars have tried to identify the anatomy, which is laid out in Nida with the anatomy of actual women as we know it nowadays. Charlotte van Robert, and I just want to give a general shout out because Charlotte and and Charlotte van Robert and I studied this daf today, and I want to shout out, give a thanks to her. But she writes in her book, Menstrual Purity, or 2000, from 2000, the search for the reference of the metaphors, right, the prosdor, the aliyah, the makor, however, produces a major hermeneutic impasse. Basically, the choice of reference is culled from the sphere of the various medical or scientific anatomic knowledges of the commentators, none of which are either accurate or objectively mimetic themselves. The attempt to, dis- to ascribe accuracy defined in such terms to the late antique rabbis has to remain fruitless by definition, even if we assume that they had relatively advanced medical knowledge. For all that one is able to conclude in the end is that the rabbis did not perhaps exactly know what they were talking about because we cannot identify the rabbinic metaphors in terms of our current scientific medical knowledge. The attempt to identify the anatomical reference then has reached an impasse. And since this part of the sugya is interesting for a different reason, but the importance of it is not here what the anatomy of woman looks like. So we're not going to spend that much time trying to figure out exactly what we have to know for our sugya is that in the rabbinic imagination, there was a kind of the vagina, and the uh, which is the prosdor, there was the makor, and there was an alias. There were three parts. There's spatially... There was the prosdor, the hallway, the opening, the uh, source or the cheder or the room, and the aliyah, the upper chamber. And they were, to a certain extent, in relationship to each other. And that's what we have to know. And what's interesting about it is that, of course, the Gemara is not interested in a question here. Here, menstruation is not the question. Impurity is not the important question either. The important question is, on a spatial plane, whether that spatial distance, whether the nearness is determinative or rove is determinative. The fact that there is the majority of something, right? Before we just saw the majority of doves in a dove cut, if it's the large majority in a dove cut. Now, the interesting thing in the whole sugya, and this perhaps is why Rabirmia came as a as a prophylactic warning, is that majority is not used usually in this sense, right? That they are usually when we say majority, especially the 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 reason, the way that majority, that rove is anchored as a dorite is anchored in the Torah, is Achrei Rabim Lahatot, that you go after a majority, which is a classic midrashic move to say that you need a majority of the court, right, in order to convict somebody. Even though 
and we're not going to go into we, we we need not go into that here either. Even though the shot of that verse, the literal meaning of that verse says does not say that, but the way, but it that is so there, which actually reinforces the fact that that's a rabbinic statement, and the rabbinic statement is that you need a majority of a court in order to convict somebody. That shows us that that that's the the foundation the of the fact that majority is a biblical term, but it is a majority of something. Right? It's not that there are a lot of. Right? It seems to be so. It seems to be that the the robe is used in a different way than it is normally used. And here, though, uh, what we're sa- what they're saying is that the question is. Right. So a blood that's found in in the prosdor in the hallway, which let's say for argument's sake is the is the vagina. And we don't know wh- where it's from, so then we consider it impure, because we assume, there's a chazaka, we assume that it is from the source, the makor, which let's say for argument's sake is the uterus. Even though there's also the aliyah, which for argument's sake, let's say, are the fallopian tubes. But I keep saying for argument's sake because these are not at all necessary identifications. Okay, so we have the upper chamber, which is closer. So we have a rove, we have a karov, we have something which is a majority, most of it. Most of the blood comes from the source, the cheder, but the upper chamber is closer. So in the tension between the majority and the closeness, we go with the majority over the closeness, right? And that seems to be a bias saying that he's agreeing with Rabbi Hanina, who says that when you have a majority and a close distance, you go after you follow the majority. Amar le Rava, so Rava says to him, Rov umatsui kamart. You didn't say, you, you did not prove what you thought you were proving, right? The, the issue of the blood has to do with the fact that it's not only it's a majority, but it's also where that blood usually is, Marovu Matsui, it is, it is found there, right? Most of the blood, it's not only most of the blood, but that's the constant habitual habit. It's not something, you're not marching into a new situation, but Marovu Matsui, that that blood is found there. The blood from the Makor is found in the prosdor. So that's why we say that it is, that any blood that's found there, you don't know where it's from, you assume it's from the Makor, from the source, the uterine source. So therefore, you have not proven, Rabbi Hanina, you have not proven that the tension between majority and distance, uh, you use the majority. Rov umatsui lekalamandamar. And Rov umatsui is not what is being learned from Rabbi Hanina. Right? You can't learn from Rov umatsui, from Rov and from a majority, and that this is this is what normally is found. You can't learn that to Rabbi Hanina. as it says in a brayta, Rabbi Chia says, "Dama nimtzaba prosdor," and this is in Tosef and Sotah. "Dama nimtzaba prosdor, chayvin alav al biat mikdash v'sorfin alav et hatruma." Blood that's found in the prosdor, the hallway, one is obligated for it if one goes into the temple. And one burns the truma over. In other words, you can't if you, there's blood is found in the prose door. So then a woman is not allowed to go into the temple because she is impure. And if she goes into the temple, she is obligated to bring a sacrifice. And if she touches truma, you burn the truma for it. You burn the, the priestly offering of the of the grain, priestly grain. But Amar Rava, Shmaminami Drabichiatlat. And Rava said, I learned three things from this statement of Rabbi Khiya. Shmamina Rova Karov, Halecha Karov. So I learned that if you have Rov and Karov, they're both majority and 
closeness, use the majority. And you learn that a rove is a Torah concept. And I also learned that we follow Rabbi Zera. Rabbi Zera said, Even if the gates of the city are locked, because a woman is like the gates of the city are locked. Now this, of course, takes some explanation because we we mentioned last week, but the classic case of rove and karov is when you have you find a piece of meat in a city and there are nine stores that sell meat that is slaughtered properly and one store that sells meat that's slaughtered improperly. And then you have a piece of meat, so you don't know where, where it came from. So there you can have a case of ruba de ruba, right, of a double rove, double majority, when most of the stores in the town are kosher, and most of the stores around the town are kosher. So in that case, you definitely consider the meat kosher. But now the question is also that what happens if the town is gated? There's a wall around, it's a walled town, and the gate is locked. So then that cuts off the possibility of it coming from stores outside the town. So you only have one majority. And even in that case, it is mutar. Even in that case, you're allowed to eat it because you assume that it goes after the majority, which is kosher. And here, so Rava is learning that we follow Rabbi Zera because a woman is like a town with a gate around it and the gates of the wall are locked. But even in that case, we still follow the majority, meaning in the case of the meat, we eat the meat. In the case of the blood and the woman, we assume that it is impure. So here we have this brighta, and Rava learns from this these three things. The first one is that you follow the majority and not the distance. The second thing is that you learn that the concept of majority is a biblical concept, and you learn that because you need, if a woman goes into the to the temple with uh, blood that is safek tameh, and you consider it tameh, you consider it impure, she has to bring a korban, which you only bring on a biblical impurity, or that you burn the truma, and the third is this of Rabzera, of that a woman is like a town, a walled town with locked gates. Right? Isn't Rava the one who said that if you find blood and you don't know where it's from in the prosdar, and you don't know where it's from, that's not considered rov and karov, that's considered rov and matsui. The reason you assume it's tamay is because it is normally found there. I mean, that's usually the blood that comes into the vagina comes from the uterus. And so therefore, that's why you assume that it is impure blood. So how could he say here that he learns that this is the the way to resolve the tension between a majority and closeness? So the Stam says, Hadr be rava mehahu. So Rav actually reversed himself and no longer holds that that's considered Rav Matsui, but actually agrees with Abaye and supports and says that this agrees that this supports Reb Chanina, who says that uh, in a case of Rav, majority of a Karov and a nearness, that you follow the Rav. So that's kind of an interesting Stamenik Sugya. And there was to say that what might have happened is that there were, the Stam knew these two sources. And how do you put them together as one? How do you put them together in the same Zuya? I mean, well, here you have Rubba saying two contradictory things. And so that generated the narrative of Rubba reversed himself.
which is a stamaitic narrative, because the, the stam that asked the question did not rub a serov matsui, and then said, well, actually, he reversed himself. Okay. So now we're, see, now, once again, we've, we've supported Rav Chanino, says Rav and Karov, you follow the majority, Itzmar. So now we have another case. Chavit Shetzafa Banahar. If you have a, a cask that's floating on the river. Amarav. You see a cask that's floating on the river, right? A cask of, of wine. And the question is, can you drink the wine out of this cask? Chavit Shetzafa Banahar. A cask that's floating on the river. Amarav. Well, of course... Problem is, where is it coming from? Is it pure wine or is it impure wine? Is it wine that there's a whole problem of wine that's made by non-Jews because it's especially made by idolaters, that it's uh, wine that is yayin nesach. So it's uh, fear and rabbinic law that the wine will have been dedicated to, with intention to dedicating it to the worship of idolatry, and then you can't drink it. And beyond that, this has been expanded outwards to, to any wine that's made by non-Jews. You can't uh, drink it. Okay, so here you have this cask of wine floating along on the river. Amar Rav, Rav said, Nimtzeit keneget ir shurubah Yisrael mutar. Keneget ir shurubah nochrim asira. So Rav says that if you find the cask, uh, if the cask is in the river, when when you see it, it is opposite a city which is majority Jewish, majority Israelite. So then one can drink it. If you find it opposite a city which is majority non-Jews, so then uh, it is forbidden. Even if it is opposite a city which is majority Israelite, majority Jewish, it is still forbidden because you can say perhaps it came from Dakra, which is a city that is all non-Jewish. So maybe it came here from a city that's non-Jewish, uh, which is perhaps close. So the Stam initially wants this machloket between Rav and Shmuel to be about whether or not they hold with Rabbi Hanina about Rov and Karov, whether or not in this question, so whether they follow the majority or they follow distance, let's say that this is a, a dispute in Rabbi Hanina. The one of them holds Rabbi Hanina, that you go after the row, so that would seem to be Rav, who agrees with Rabbi Hanina, um, because Rob says if it's opposite a, a, a city that is majority Jewish, it's permitted. And if it's opposite a city that's majority non-Jewish, it is forbidden. And Shmuel doesn't hold like Rabbi Hanina, because even if it's opposite a city that's majority Jewish, maybe it came from Dakra. So maybe it came from this other city, which is near and is not Jewish. Lo. The stamp says, no, that's not the story here. The Kuliyama Edlud Rabbi Hanina. The whole world, the whole world meaning both Rabbi Shmuel here, but the whole world agrees with Rabbi Hanina, right, that we go after Rav. But here's what we're talking about. Demar Savar im ita demahai akra datai akuli ufashuri habe matbile. So one of them says, actually, that, so the, the, the real dispute is not about Rov and Karov, but the real dispute is about reality. One of them says that if you're going to say, if we're going to agree that it comes from Dakra, actually, then all the the eddies and the coves of the river is flowing down the river. It would have already sunk. Right? It would have got stuck someplace. It would have sunk in the ground. It never would have gotten here. So that's why we look at it as its opposite uh, Jewish city. Umar Savar 
Kharifa de Nahara Nakad Vatai. And the other one says actually that the uh, speed of the river would have taken it and brought it anyway. So both Rav and Shmuel hold that you go after the majority, but just Rav holds that it couldn't have been from this non-Jewish city, Dakra, because if it would have been from that city, then it would have already been hung up further down the river. And Shmuel holds that no, uh, this, the river is flowing fast enough that it would have taken it and it would have brought it in front of the city. So the argument is about a the reality of the situation. Okay, next case. So there was a the, this um, skin of wine, which was found in an orchard of Orla grapes. Orla grapes are grapes in the first three years, um, which you're not allowed to eat in the fourth year. They have to be brought to the temple. And so, therefore, the wine that's made out of them is also forbidden. So, what do we do with these? What do we do with this wine that's found in this grape? So, Sharia Rabbi Rabbina said it's okay. Let's say because they hold like Rabbi Hanina, and Rabbi Hanina holds that rove, that a majority, and not karov. The karov is the grapes of Orla. But the rove is that most grapes are not Orla, right? So, therefore, it would be okay. As Ravina says, it's okay, it's kosher. So no, Sam says shine hatam. No, that's different. Why do e mignav mina atnuay begave la mitznai? Because if it would have been stolen from that pardes, um, from that orchard, you don't hide things that you steal from the same place. Vahani mili chamra, and also we're talking about wine. Avol inve matzni, but. Grapes, you would have hid them in the same place, and so therefore it would have been a different situation, perhaps, if it was grapes, and therefore the situation of grapes that you find in a in an orchard of Orla, maybe um, we would not, maybe Ravina would not have held this way, and therefore it would not have backed up Rebchanina. Okay, finally, Hanu Ziki de Chamra de Shtachin Bekupai. There was this bag of wine which was found uh, along the road. Sharnuhu Rava. So Rava said it, it is uh, it is okay, right? Bekupai is like a place of just like flotsam, you know, just falling along the side of the road. So Rava said it's okay. Lema la sabra la Rabbi Hanina. Let's say he doesn't hold like Rabbi Hanina. Um, why? Because everybody's on the road, so we don't know who it goes according to. So we're not going according to Rove. Right? We're not saying that most things along the road are not good. We're just saying that it's, uh, that we're just going to say it's, it's okay. We're going to ignore that. Shani hatam deruva de shafuchai Yisrael Say, no, that's different there. Why? Because the majority of people who pour wine are Jewish. So therefore, we have here wine in, in wine casks, these small wine casks, these ziki or wine bags. And most people who pour the wine into that are Israelites. And here we're talking about actually large wine casks. But if they were small, so that's then we could say that they fell along fell along the side of the road. And therefore we could hold with Rabbi Hanina that because we don't know who the, the people who travel on the road are. So therefore it could have we would, could assume with Rabbi Hanina that the majority of people who travel on the road are not Jewish. And therefore these uh this wine belonged to non-Jews. And if there were large casks together with a small cask, so then we could actually say that because of the small cask and large cask, and they uh, that they that that they are in a kind of a tower that they were put on 
that they fell off because they were put, they fell off, but we know that they fell off because they were probably carried in such a way to balance out the, the pack on the back of the donkey or the camel or whatever it was that they were, they were carrying them on. Okay, so here we've gotten to the end of this sugya, this sugya which is trying to figure out the relationship between rov and karov in all of these various different situations. This week's podcast is brought to you by Job and Friends Group Therapy. Are you feeling down? Sad? Does it feel like your life is going nowhere? Well, come to Job and Friends, and after your first hour of group therapy, you will realize that your life could be so much worse. Now, Job and Friends have locations in both Surah and Pumpadita. And for listeners of this podcast, if you mention Daf Shui, you get a 20% discount off your first session. Job and Friends, because your life could be so much worse. All right, and we're moving along. One must distance. Now, again, we're talking about borders, borders of one's property. How much does one have control over the borders of one property? one's property. One has to distance a tree from a city 25 amot. But in the case of a carob tree or a, a sycamore tree, it's 50 amot. Okay, because those, those trees, apparently they have um, larger branches and so therefore they get closer to the city and this is a what's interesting is that the this discussion here is not only about property rights and outside the city but it's also about urban planning what is considered nice and we'll get to that we'll, we'll see that in a minute that it's about a band outside the city a band of land outside the city which is kind of like breathing room for the city abashol says any tree which does not give fruit um, has to be 50 amot away from the city because apparently trees that do not give fruit were not considered pretty trees. If the city was built before the tree was planted, then uh, you cut down the tree and you don't have to pay the owner of the tree for the tree. If the tree preceded the city, then you cut down the tree and you give the owner of the you pay the owner of the tree. If it's uncertain whether the tree preceded the city or the city preceded the tree, you cut it down and you don't pay the tree owner. Okay, there we go. So it's not actually that big on private property stuff. Here we go. My time. So the Gemara asks, what's the reason? Why? What's the point? Ula says because of the beautification of the city. And again, that notion that around the city there should be a band of land which does not have trees in it, right? So that you can go outside and it's just kind of open land. Um, we could derive this from the fact that we have a Mishnah in Arachin which tells us, from which we learn, that one is not allowed to um, make a migrash into a field or a field into a migrash. So that means that outside the city, so we have, here's an interesting digression that we have to take. In Deuteronomy 35, 
talking about the cities that the Levites get. But then this, the, what they say about the Levites, the description of the cities that the Levites get is then applied to all Israelite cities. And that happens in a different Gemara that happens in the Gemara in, in Arachin. But the the verses are as follows. Sabbath b'nei Israel b'natnu l'alviim minachalat achuzatam arim l'ashevet migrash l'arim sivotam t'tnu l'alviim. So God says to Moshe, command the children of Israel, and give to the Levites uh, estates, cities, and here's the important point, cities to sit in, and a migrash, a, a field, a court, like uh, an empty open field for the cities around them, give to the Levites. So you have a city, and then you have like this open space around them, the migrash, which is not a sadeh, it's a migrash. It is kind of a grazing area, perhaps. It's just, um, like a lawn, right? When lawns were became lawns because you just let stuff grow wild and then animals ate it. Right? And the cities were that for them to settle and their migrashim, these kind of fields, were for their animals and for all their for for their domestic and 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 large animals, migrashe arim and these migrashim these these fields of the city asher titnu lalavim that you give to the Levites, mikira ir vachutsa elaf saviv they are a thou for a thousand amot outside the city umadotem michutz laer et pat kedma al payim ba'mav et pat negev al payim ba'mav et pat yam al payim ba'mav et pat safon al payim ba'mav and then you have to measure outside two thousand amot in each. Di- direction, and you might notice here that this is 2,000 amot instead of the 1,000 amot, and that's a contradiction which the Gemara deals with and and, and uh, exploits for a different reason. But uh, and the cities in the middle, and this will be the courts of the city. So on this, we have another Mishnah, a Mishnah that's in Arachin, which talks about the fact that you can't make a Sadeh into a Migrash or a Migrash into a Sadeh. Right? So Ula says here that the reason that you have to keep the 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 trees away from the city twenty five amot is because of the beautification of the city, right? And that's so the Stam is saying, wait a second, Enosin Sademigrash Migrash you can't make the Migrash band into a field band, right? And a Migrash doesn't have trees. And that goes a thousand cubits out. So therefore, how do you how why do you need this twenty-five cubit rule? Right? Because in the Mishnah in Sota, it says, Bobayom Darash Rabbi Akiva, this is one of the things Rabbi Akiva extrapolated on that day, taught on that day. You have to measure outside the city in all the directions, 2,000 amot. In the previous verse, from the wall of the city outwards, you have to measure 1,000 amot, right? And that seems to be a contradiction. 1,000 and 2,000. So you can't say, Rabbi Kiva says, you can't say 1,000 Cubits, a thousand amot, because you already said two thousand. You can't say two thousand because you already said a thousand. In other words, there's a contradiction here. It says actually a thousand amot is for Migrash, this empty area, and two thousand is for Tchum Shabbat, that you're allowed to you're allowed to walk outside a city two thousand amot, and not more on Shabbat. Right, 
Rabbi Lezer, the son of Rabbi Yosef Lili, says that a thousand amot is for Migrash, for this empty empty lawn space for the animals to graze, and 2,000 amot are for fields and orchards. Okay, so back to here. So there we have the 1,000 amot, and so therefore you can't have trees in there. So what's with the trees and the 25 amot? Low. Tzricha. No, you need it. Why? Because even though it says in the Mishnah in Arachin, we just read the Mishnah in Sotah, but the Mishnah in Arachin says, you can't make Sadeh into a Migrash or a Migrash into a Sadeh. You can't make this kind of lawn into a field where you grow stuff and you can have trees or the other way around. But Rebbe there says, Osin Sadeh Migrash or Migrash Sadeh. So there, there is a, a, an opinion of, of Rabbi Lezer who says that you can make a sadeh into a migrash, and a migrash into a sadeh, these like the lawn into the field. And here, our mission is coming to tell us that because of the concept of, of the beauty of the city, you don't even do it within, uh, within 25 amot. Okay, so now here's an interesting thing. When we look at the, the Mishnah in Arachin, on 24b, in the last chapter of Arachin, it actually, Rebelezer doesn't say, Osin Sadeh Migrash Migrash Sadeh, doesn't say you can make a field into a Migrash or a Migrash into a field. Rather, he says, Osin Sadeh Migrash Lo Migrash Sadeh. You can make a field into a Migrash. So in other words, you can make the, 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 the field that you can grow things in into a place that you can't grow things in, and the other, and not the other way around. As opposed to the Bavli here, which says, And now all the manuscripts of that Mishnah there have it that way. All the manuscripts of this line in our Gemara have it the way it is in this line in the Gemara. But we're going to see in a minute that actually something interesting happens. So it says here, so the reason that they have to bring it is because even though you have this thousand amod band, and even though Rebbe says you're allowed to use it, still within 25 amot you can't plant a tree. Ulurabanan, not now it says in the printed editions, Ulurabanan nami da amri enosin sedemigrash velomigrash sadeh. And according to the rabbis who also say you don't make a sedemigrash and not a migrash sadeh, which is a problematic line because it's basically just repeating what we said before. And Ulurabanan is a type of introduction which say that. But what about according to a different opinion? And it's not a different opinion because it's just an opinion. it's just what we we said this we had this line before. So most of the manuscripts, not all, but most of the manuscripts actually instead of that have lahach lishna de amar rebelezer. According to the version in which rebelezer says osin sadeh migrash avalo migrash sadeh. And if you follow along in the in the Vilna, you'll see that that's very different. So according to the version in which Rebelezer says, you can make a field into this band of, of grazing land, but not grazing land into a field, right? So then that concurs with the version of the Mishnah in Arachin, which is fascinating, meaning that our sugya, the Stam and our sugya knew that there were two versions, or had as a tradition, there were two versions of Rebelezer's opinion in Arachin. So, according to the opinion of Rebelezer, it says, Osin Sadeh Migrash, Avalo Migrash Sadeh, that says that you can make a field into this place where you graze animals, but not place where you graze animals into a field. Hanimili Zraim, 
Aval Ilanot Avdinan. Right, that is only talking about lo migrash today. Now that I make the migrash into sedeh, that means you're not allowed to plant. Or here we're talking, we're talking about grains, but you're allowed to put in trees, and therefore we still need our Mishnah to tell us that within twenty-five amot, you're not allowed to put trees in. Right, so even though, even according to the version of that Mishnah in Arachin, which says that you're allowed to make a field into a band of grazing land, but you're not allowed to make the band of grazing land into a field. Making the field into a band, that is only talking about Zraim, but trees you're allowed to. So therefore, you would be allowed to plant trees on the grazing land. So our mission is coming to tell us that you can't plant trees within 25 amot of the city. Uh, it adds a Michael Amemar before Honey Mili's Ram. In other words, say, according to that, that other version, what are we going to say? And it says, because that's talking only about grains and not about trees. And therefore, we need And here, because of the beauty of the city, you're not allowed to do it. In other words, so we have the halacha of our Mishnah is still necessary, even according to Rabbi Lezer, because of we need that band around the city. 25 amot from the city in order to preserve the beauty of the city. So how do we know that you, we actually differentiate between grains and trees? So a karpaf, which is a type of structure which is important in the laws of Shabbat, it is a large structure which has been walled off. It's, the ty- it's, a, it's a structure that's large enough for two sa'as of grain to be grown there. It's not growing two sa'as of grain. So nizraru, so if it is walled or walled off, not walled off, but walled off so that somebody would might live there or the intention to somebody live there. So then you're allowed to carry in there as if it's a rishut yachid, as if it's a private domain. Nizraru bo basur. If you plant most of it, for grain, right, uh, with seeds. If you seed most of it, so then it's considered like a garden and it is forbidden because you wouldn't normally walk across your gar- your garden or your field. But if you planted trees on most of it, so then it's like a courtyard and it's permitted to carry in it because you have trees in a courtyard. So that's how we know that there is actually a halachic distinction between grain and trees being planted in that 25 amot from outside the wall. Okay. So now remember, we're, the Mishnah is talking about, just to remind ourselves, the Mishnah is talking about tree, city. Was the tree planted first? Was the city planted first? And there's a difference because of compensation. So it says, if the tree came first, so you cut the tree down, and the city doesn't have to pay a, a compensation to the owner of the tree. Um, if the tree came first, then if you cut it down, when you cut it down, you have to pay compensation. So, Why does it say, uh, in a few dapim, we have a similar situation where you have a cistern and a tree, and if the cistern is first, then it says, that you cut it down, you cut the tree down, and you pay the balabayat. But here it says, if the city is first, you cut it down and you don't pay the owner. 
Kana answers with kind of a parable, a folk saying. If you have an oven that belongs to two partners, it is not going to be warm and it's not going to be cold. In other words, everybody's going to rely on somebody else and nobody's going to end up heating the oven. So, really? I mean, basically, my kushi here is saying, what does Rav Kahana's statement have to do with anything? Maybe, actually, the difference is that if you have a damage to the rabim, to the majority of people, to the public, in other words, if you put the tree out near the city, so that's damaging the city, which is the public, and that's different from Hezekah Diachid, when you have a tree in your field next to a cistern in somebody else's field. Ela'i, it's my Rav Kahana, Seifa Edmar. So, but rather, in reality, this time tells us that actually Rav Kahana's folk saying was actually directed towards the end of the, the, the last part of the Mishnah. Im he'ilan kadam That if the tree was earlier, you cut it down and then you, you give the tree owner money. He could say to them, give me the money first, and then I'll cut down the tree. Rav Kahana, about this, Rav Kahana said, Rav Kahana says that if you have an oven that belongs to two people, it's not going to be hot and it's not going to be cold, meaning that everybody's lazy. So if you give him the money first and then you rely on him to cut it down, then it's never going to get cut down. But if you cut it down, you can rely on him to run after you to sue the city and try to get his money back. Okay. So if you don't know which preceded, whether the tree preceded the city or the city preceded the tree, you cut down the tree and you don't pay compensation. Why, why is this different than a bar where you said if you don't know which one came first in a cistern and a tree, then you don't cut down the tree? There, where it is a case that even if it was certain, you don't cut the tree down. In a case where it is uncertain, you, of course, don't cut the tree down. Here, where it, in a case of certainty, you will cut the tree down. So in a case of uncertainty, you also cut the tree down, meaning that it doesn't make a difference whether or not the tree came first or the city came first, you're going to cut the tree down. The only difference is whether or not you're compensated for it. There, in the case of the borer, you're not sure that you're going to cut the, the tree down. And if you're worried about the question, if you're you're interested in the question of payment, so say to the guy, bring me a proof and then I'll give you money. In other words, if you think you deserve compensation for it, so it's on you, possibly because of the fact that it's a city. Okay, interesting questions which are brought up are, which, which were raised here about cities, outside of cities, urban planning. If you plant a tree outside the city, what does that mean, right? Are you planting in public property? What kind of, what do you, what rights and responsibilities do you have or don't have? The public has more rights than the private person, apparently here. All right. And along this line, the last Mishnah on on Chavtal Ramadbet twenty four B. You have to place a granary, a place where you keep grain. 
a grain storehouse, which is permanent, 50 amot from the city. Person is not allowed to put a grain storehouse inside his property unless he has 50 amot in every direction. This is very, this is exactly parallel to what we saw about putting a dovecote in your own property. And also you have to distance it from the planting of your fellow the guy who has the property next to you, and from not only from his planting, that, that which he planted, but also from his, his, his plowed land, enough that you shouldn't damage it. Now, the problem here is that the grain, when you will see in a minute, that when you winnow the grain, you winnow it with a winnowing tool. You, if you go online, you can see really nice pictures of people winnowing and winnowing tools. You throw it in the air, and then the wind takes it, and then it flies onto somebody else's onto your, your fellow's plants or onto the plowed land, and it kills the plants because it kind of suffocates them. I'm a Brooklyn boy, so I'm assuming that people know what they're talking about, especially in agricultural stuff. Maishna Reisha, Maishna Seifa. So what's the difference between the Reisha, the, between the first line of the Mishnah and the last line of the Mishnah, where the first line of the Mishnah has a definite measurement? You have to keep your granary or your grain storehouse 50 amot away, and in the end, you have to keep it away from the plantings enough so that it won't be damaged, so that it won't cause damage. Why? Why one is 50 mo definitely, and the other one just enough to won't cause damage. I'm Rabbi, so Rabbi says, Seifa Atan, the Goran Sheino Kavua. Rabbi says that the, the end of the mission is talking about a granary which is not permanent. Hechidami Goran Sheino Kavua. What defines a granary which is not Permanent. Amar says, Anyone which you don't winnow with a rachat, which is the winnowing tool. Um, in other words, if you just winnow it by throwing it in the air, which is another way of winnowing, taking the chaff away from the wheat, then that's considered something which is not permanent. Ravashi Amar, Ravashi says, Matam Kamar. Ravashi is actually the first line in the Mishnah is a Matam line. In other words, a line which says this is something which an interpretive move on the Mishnah, which often happens, that the Mishnah says something, and then what the Amoraim are saying is that actually that line should have a matam, what is the reason for, appended to it in the beginning, and should be read as follows. What is the reason that you have to put a permanent granary 50 amot from a city in order that it shouldn't do damage. Right? And then it makes the rest of the Mishnah make sense. Meitve, but this is a problem. We're challenge, we're, we're offering a challenge from another another Brighto, which says, A permanent granary has to be distanced 50 amot from the city. And just as you have to place it 50 amot distant from the city, so too you have to keep it away from the squash and the pumpkins and the other kind of things that are planted and from the plowed land of his fellow, 50 amot, in order so that it doesn't cause damage. So, that's a problem. So, so according to Ravashi, 
that's okay. That the this is just uh, the second part of the Mishnah is explaining the first part of the Mishnah, and they're all talking about fifty amot. And the last line of the Mishnah is just explaining why fifty amot is in order so that it shouldn't cause damage. But according to Abaya, who says that there's a difference between the first part of the Mishnah and the second part of the Mishnah, here our Brighta says that this is talking all about a permanent granary, which seems to contradict Abaya. El Abaya Kasha. So it is a problem for Abaya. Kasha, really? Bishlama mi kashuav umi daluav da azil afkav atiblibe umatsule. So, okay, I can understand that his squashes and pumpkins, that the dust goes and it flies onto it and it finds them. Ella mi niro amai, but from his plowing, what difference does it make with his plowing? So Amar Rav Abba Bar Zavda, Itam Rav Abba Bar Zutra, so Abba Bar Zavda, or perhaps Rav Abba, the son of Zutra, says, Mipnesho Seoto Glal. So the reason that you can't, that it's also you have to stay away from plowed land, because what happens is that apparently when you winnow, the chaff flies off and it comes together with the dirt and it becomes a, a kind of fertilizer. But it's so much fertilizer that it kind of it, it asphyxiates the seeds and and kills them off. So therefore, you have to keep fifty amot away from also from the plowed land. And apparently, Abai is wrong. It's a knockout punch to Abai. Okay, and we're going to stop here uh, with Abaya being wrong and. If you're building a granary, keep it 50 cubits away from your fellow's plants. There we go. Thank you for joining me once again in the Beit Midrash in the Closet for Daf Shui, Weekly Daf. Give me 40 minutes or so and I'll give you a Daf or so. Uh, my name is Aryeh Cohen. You can follow me on Twitter at Irmiklat, I-R-M-I-K-L-A-T. As always, my producer is Eli Unger-Sargon, the man with the controls, the guy who makes this podcast listenable. Thank you, Ellie. If you liked this journey into Baba Bacha, please give us a rating and the Apple podcast page. Tell your friends. Bring everybody. There's lots of room here in this Beit Midrash in the Closet. Hopefully I'll see you again next week. Be well. Stay healthy. Wash your hands.